If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Lord, on this Sunday where we are reminded of your gift, of your spirit, um, we again ask uh, that you would fill us with that spirit even now. We know that your word has power um, but oftentimes we uh, remain untouched by it because of the hardness of our hearts. And so we ask now that you would open our eyes to see the treasures that this passage has for us, that you would convince our heart of the love of Christ and of who we are in him, and that you would draw us nearer to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... um, Ninth grade is kind of an awkward time for most of us. I mean, maybe there are a few people who were awesome in ninth grade, but I certainly wasn't one of them. If I kind of go through my ninth grade year, it's just like kind of a highlight reel of cringeworthy moments. Maybe you're similar. I, uh, I think I was just kind of figuring out who I was, right? That's how many of us are. Um, and I, I remember one time, um, so I played trombone, and uh, I had qualified for districts, which is when you have people from like every school kind of making a band together, they practice together, they perform together. So... So nobody knew me. I was completely an unknown. And so here's a chance to reinvent myself. Um, so the next trombonist, he and I were talking, as, you know, because you know, sometimes there's like these breaks between the songs. And I don't know what, what induced me to do this, but I started talking about, oh, yeah, man, I had real problems with drugs. Bad stuff. Don't do that, dude. Don't do that. Like, now, I would not even have recognized the smell of marijuana. I would not know what cocaine looked like. But for some reason, that was the person. I mean, I guess I decided that I needed to be the rebel guy because surprisingly to you, I wasn't that guy. I was just an awkward ninth grader. And I remember even coming home going, why did I just do that? Like, it kind of almost felt even then like, oh, that was, that was weird. And, and there's just even awareness that like, oh, that's not me. Like, why did I do that? That's not me. So, you know, there's this quote that we're all from, many of us are familiar with from Shakespeare, to thine own self be true. Um, probably Shakespeare, when he wrote it, actually was being ironic. But still, it's become almost this, this proverb that many of us live by. To thy own self be true. That is, we can't be someone other than we actually are. I mean, we can try for a while, like I did, 
but it's kind of like trying to defy gravity. You can jump and for a moment you're in the air, but you'll always come down. You'll always revert back to who you are. So you might as well be who you are. And in fact, it's, it's not really, it's not enjoyable to be someone that we're not. There's something about us being in harmony with ourselves when we're just actually who we are. To your own self be true. Now, interestingly enough, I think our passage this morning actually gives us that exact counsel. It says, if you are a believer in Christ, to thine own self be true. But it raises a question that maybe we haven't even thought of asking. Who is that person that we say yourself is? Who are you supposed to be true to? Because if you were here with us last week, you might remember we said something significant has happened. The difference between Christianity and every other religion is that where all other religions say you have to improve yourself to get to God, you have to make yourself into something, Christianity says that's not going to be possible. What God does is he comes down and he stoops and he changes you through Christ. He causes a self-change so that you are no longer you. You are you with Jesus. And he brings you back up to himself. And scripture says, that's the self that you're to be true to. Be true to your new self. And that's what our passage says. If you, if you look at just even the opening verse in Colossians 3, it says, since then, or if then, you have been raised with Christ. That's talking about this new self that has been created. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. To thine own new raised self be true. Or you see something similar in verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above. Now at this point I think it's important to kind of clarify something because when we hear this, oftentimes we hear set your mind on things above. Do not, as we'll see in a moment, do, you know, like focus on earthly things. It can seem a bit of a bummer. Because I think our minds naturally go, what it's saying is we're supposed to now be focusing on prayer and kind of quiet contemplation and, and worship songs and evangelism. What we shouldn't be doing is like the, you know, the spiritual things we should be doing, the physical things like football and making furniture and, and hugs and swimming and eating steak. Those are the earthly things and now we're supposed to kind of put those beside us. And if we're honest... That doesn't feel right. Like, that doesn't feel like us, right? And I want to say that we're misunderstanding this passage if we think that what Paul is saying is we're supposed to be focusing on these spiritual things and leave behind anything that's related to the physical reality of this world. No, when Paul is talking here, he is actually speaking of something that we see throughout the New Testament. And that is, in this life, in this reality in which we list, uh, exist, there are actually two worlds that are side by side. There's, there's the new creation and there's the old creation. Now this is a hard concept, so I was trying to think through what, what is a good analogy to give us a sense of how there can be kind of two worlds side by side. And I ended up, as I almost always do, going to kind of my, my nerd self. And I was thinking of Harry Potter. Now, I realize some of you are not huge Harry Potter fans, but just kind of bear with me. If you've seen the movies or you've read the books, you'll know that in this universe of Harry Potter, most people exist just like we do. That is, for most people, their world seems normal. Everything follows the rules of science. These people, by the way, are called muggles. 
And, and you know, like the world can be explained by political and technological and economic forces just like we see our world right now. But there is a portion of people who recognize that there is another reality that few people are aware of. That actually magic exists. That wands are sources of power. That there are wizards who actually are the ones who shape the real events. There is a deeper reality that few people know, but those who do realize that it's an entirely different world than most people think of. Now I want to say, in, in just a small sense, that that kind of two realities going on side by side is the way reality actually is. There, there's the world that we're all very familiar with, the world that we see, the world that people have themselves at the center and God is kind of moved to the, to the side. The world where people right now are feeling very cynical about because we see its flaws, we're more likely to be ironic than optimistic. A world that we see death happening again and again. And ultimately, Scripture says a world that is judged. That is the world that we know. But Scripture says, when Jesus rose from the dead, a new world began. It says, the resurrection began a new creation. Jesus in seed form began this whole new reality. And as he spoke the gospel, this, this hidden power of the Spirit started exploding throughout the world. People's lives were changed. They were born again into this new creation, this new reality. New communities are being formed. A deeper understanding of what's going on was taking place. And there is a hope. Whereas one is seeing destruction, this one is a world where there is redemption. Now, it's a hidden world, but it's here just the same. In fact, it is the deeper reality. Two worlds side by side. Scripture speaks in a number of different ways. It talks about the kingdom of man the kingdom of God. The, the, the world above, like the above things, and the world below. It will also talk about it in terms of, of us. It will speak of the old man and the new man. The flesh and the Spirit, all of these things are getting at the fact that there are two realities going on. One that we can see, and one that we can't. One that has no future, one that has a glorious future. And Scripture here in our passage says, you have been moved from one to the other. It's not just that you've had a self-change. You've had a world change. I mean, Paul speaks of your past, of your present, and your future. You, he says, have been raised with Christ, and you have died with Christ. The old self that was centered on self is no more. When you believed in Christ, whether this felt dramatic or not, something utterly significant took place. You were transformed so that the old self where you were at the center is no more and the new self that is you with Jesus is now alive. There was a change of world and a change of self that took place. And the present, it says in this passage, that your life is now hidden with Christ. Which means if you find this hard to believe because you're saying, I don't really experience the fact that I'm new and I'm changed, well, that shouldn't surprise you. It's hidden. It's a reality that's beginning to work its way out. But right now, our flaws, our inadequacies, they're the things that we notice most. But who we actually are is hidden in Christ. And we don't see it right now. But one day we will, it says. Who you are will appear in glory with Christ Jesus. See, 
Here's the amazing thing. Who you are in Christ is awesome. On the last day, you will see that the, the real you, the you with Jesus, is extraordinarily loving. You are courageous. You are faithful. You are filled with integrity, and you are beautiful. This is not just a pep talk where I'm trying to give inspirational words. The Bible says that is who you are. That is what you've become. That is what is hidden right now. And you will come to realize this is who you fully are on the last day. And so Paul says, to that self be true. Uh, to, to return one more time to, to this analogy, you know, Harry Potter, for the first 11 years of his life, all he thought of him was just like a normal boy. And then he gets this letter and he realizes, wow, he's a wizard. And that changes everything because now he's in this new reality and suddenly his priorities have changed. He's wanted to grow in that ability. His idea of viewing himself, viewing his world, everything changes about who he is and what he does. And he sees himself differently and that changes everything. And similarly, Scripture is saying, once you know who you are in Christ, once you realize what an utter transformation has happened and who you one day will see yourself to be, now live that out. Seek the above things, the things of the world that you belong to. You're not part of that old society. You're part of a different society where Christ is central. Seek the above things, not the earthly things. Again, this is not be all spiritual and just be singing and praying instead of doing things physical. No, it's, it's focusing on both the spiritual and the physical in a different way. So in the way of the world, people oftentimes are viewed as contacts. That is... Thing, people that we can use to get some of the stuff that we want. But, but in the way of the kingdom of Christ, people are, are those we see in the image of God, who are ones we love and respect. In the way of the world, wealth is something we accumulate to give ourselves security and comfort. But of those who belong to the kingdom of Christ, wealth is something we cultivate so that we can bring blessing to the world and honor God. In the way of the world, we are consumed with getting our reputation, with people viewing us highly. But the way of the kingdom of Christ, our passion is to see Christ esteemed and honored. It's, it's a new world, a new way, because you are new people. And so Paul says, know who you are to your own self. Be true. And so that's where the command is. The command is, is, is you know, we move to kind of like the second half, and we see Paul saying, live out who you are. And that also means put behind you who you are not. When I was in college, um, I always struggled when I went to home. Not because I had a difficult home life. I, my family was great. But and maybe you had this experience. In college, when you're away from home, really, for the first time, for an extended period of time, you change, right? You start growing. You start figuring out more who you are. But then for me, 
every time I would go back home, I would fall back into the very same way that I used to be. And it would frustrate me. It was just all of these cues, all of these patterns that had been established over years. It's like if you ever sleep on a double bed and you, uh, like that's kind of gotten old and you start in the morning, I mean in the nighttime on one side, by the morning you found yourself in the middle because there's a divot. No matter how hard I tried, I would always kind of fall right back into the same way of existing. And the same thing can happen for us. We are changed. We belong to a new world. And yet, we still are here with all of these cues and all these ways of relating to this world, and it's so easy to fall right back into old ways. And so Paul says, put to death the old ways. Put those ways behind you. And what's interesting to me about this is he specifically focuses on how you and I relate to our desires, to our drives, to the things that motivate us. That's where he says, when you're going to put this way behind you, you need to put this way of relating to your desires behind you. Now, what do I mean? Well, before Christ, when you are just you on your own, your desires ultimately are your master. I mean, think about it. Sometimes you even hear this when people are speaking, like when you see someone doing something that you don't understand, like why are they leaving their spouse? And there's like, I, I can't help it. I, I love this other person. I've just got to be true to that. So, so there's these drives, these desires that they feel like they would be denying, and if they denied them, they feel like they would be denying themselves because that's all they are. They're just their desires. Or sometimes when people have anger problems, like I've just got to let it out. That's who I am. If I'm angry, I just have to let it. See, it's, it's language saying, I do not have the ability to do anything else than just follow my desires. That's the old way. Our desires are our master. But that's not you anymore. You're not just you on your own where your desires get to be king. You are you with Jesus. You have a power and a strength that is different before, from before, and you have a Lord that is different from before. And now you have the ability to say, my desires don't have to master me. I can submit my desires to my King, Lord Jesus. And so that's when Paul says, put to death, he's saying, the way that you used to relate to desires, and you'll notice he focuses on two, he zeroes in on two ways where it's common for us to let our desires get the better of us. One of them, you'll notice, is, is sexual morality. You know, verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, again, that's the way of the past, sexual immorality. Sexual morality, if you're wondering, the Greek word is just for any sexual activity that's outside of marriage. So that would you know, include being sexually unfaithful within marriage. That would include sex before marriage, outside of marriage. That includes pornography. Anything that is not part of what sex was designed to be, which is to unite a husband and wife within the covenant of marriage, is sexual immorality. But you notice he doesn't just dwell there. He, he immediately moves in this list from the outside to what's internal. Because, because sexual immorality, you, you can't just put to death an action. It has a deeper root, a root of desire. And so that's exactly where he goes. You're not only supposed to put to death that outward action, but also impurity, passion, evil desire. And notice where he ultimately goes, 
covetousness. So he's, he's going deeper and deeper to what's at the very heart of our problems with sexual morality. And it's not just sexual morality. We could speak of any other time that we let our desires get the better of us. Addictions, overeating, materialism. At the very heart of this, he says, is covetousness. Covetousness is just believing it when a part of us says, I will not be happy unless I have this. It's believing it when our desires say, I will not be content unless I have this experience. Unless I have this person. Unless I have this thing. That's what covetousness is. It is a desire that tells you, you will not be complete, you will not be satisfied unless this is fulfilled. And ultimately, Paul says it's not just a desire issue, it's a worship issue. He says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because what you are saying is, God, what you have for me is not enough. I'm not going to trust you with this. I'm going to need something more. Jesus, I know that I'm in you, but that's not enough. I need something more. Now, that's the lie that we used to believe when we were on our own. We did not have the firepower to resist the lie of covetousness. But now we do. Now we can say, when we are tempted, that's not me. I'll tell you, um, I, like many kids in high school, I had problems with pornography, and I don't think I really was able to experience a degree of freedom from that until I started realizing that when I was tempted, I could say, I don't want that. And that's not me. There, there's power in that. I don't have to, you don't have to allow our desires to be our master. When Paul says, put to death these things, that is not a command that gives us despair. Because it's something that actually has already taken place, right? You have already died in Christ. Christ has already done the hard work. Now you and I get to work out the benefits of what he has already done. Now, we should be clear, when he says put to death, he's intentionally using violent language. We need to deal violently. We shouldn't be casual and flippant with those things that we know that are of the old way. We need to put them to death. And so this morning, this passage invites you to consider, are there things in your life where you've let your desires run amok, whether it's addictions, whether it's sexual immorality or something else? Is there an area that you know that's of the old way, that's not with Christ at the center. We're called to put those things to death, put those ways behind us. What does that look like? Well, let me suggest, if we're wanting to put this to death, there's at least three things that I think Scripture tells us we need to do. One is we need to make a choice. You need to ask yourself, are you truly wanting to put this way behind you? Every time we sin, there is some degree of regret because sin is inherently self-destructive. Sin causes shame. But there's a difference between a, a sense of regret and actually a choice to change. It can often mask itself where we can say, I'll change, but I'll do it tomorrow. Or I'll change when God really gives me the desire to. Or I'll change as long as I don't have to do this in order to change. This is never going to happen unless you say, I do not want this anymore. And you make the choice saying, I want to put this behind me. 
Not, not because you feel like people will view you better or you want to put away the shame, but because you know, I am in Jesus, and that is not me. Will you make the choice to put it behind you? And, and secondly, for us to put this to death, will you let go of your pride? Because you need to recognize that this addiction or this sexual morality, it's not just a problem, it's not just a bad habit, it's not just a sickness, it's not just some form of brokenness, it is sin. Sin against the God who deserves your worship. And unless you name that, you will not experience the forgiveness that you find in Christ, because only when you name it truly can you experience forgiveness fully. And what's more, you need to let go of your pride because you need help from others. The way that Jesus oftentimes cares for us is through other people. And if you want to change, you need to find a friend that you can speak to about this, one that you can trust, oftentimes one of the same gender that you can ask for prayer for, ask to speak into your life. You need to let go of your pride if you really are willing to change. And thirdly, if we're called to put this to death, that means we need to be willing to make a plan. I have never seen someone who struggles with a sin just by sheer willpower choosing it and just stopping on its own. We need to think through, if I want to change, what needs to happen? Like, how can I, when I'm feeling this ache, what, what do I need to see more clearly in the gospel? How can I grow and nourish myself in Christ? If there are things that oftentimes are triggers, situations that I step into where I'll regularly be compromised, how can I change my life so that's not likely to happen? Do, do I need to see a therapist? Is there something that I really need to work through? What is the plan? That's something that you and the people that you've spoken to about this, you need to work together if you really want to change. Because we want to change, don't we? And, and let me be honest, this is not something that likely will happen quickly. And it is going to cost you, almost certainly. But it will be worth it. Because you're becoming who you are, the beautiful, glorious person in Christ. Well, there's a second set of desires that Paul speaks about. He spoke about sexual morality at first, but then you see the second one is in verse 8. It's about anger. And whereas, whereas the first one starts outward and works inward... Here we see him starting kind of with the inward and how it works its way out. But now you must put them all away, he says. Anger, that's the heart of it. Wrath is how it starts manifesting itself. Malice, the desire to hurt someone. Slander, saying cruel words and obscene talk, which is probably like verbal abuse is the idea here. So in other words, Paul is not just talking about any anger. Some anger is good. It is right for us to be angry when we see injustice. God himself demonstrates godly anger. But when anger turns in a way where it's a desire for hurting other people and destruction and cruelty, that's when it's gone ugly, isn't it? Paul says you need to put that behind you. That's, that's the way that's of the old self. Why does he say that? Well, what is going on when our anger becomes ugly? You know, uh, James, uh, kind of the, this doctor, this diagnostician of the soul, actually speaks exactly about this. He, he asks the question in his letter, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You covet 
and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you hear that? He is saying the reason that we have anger problems ultimately is the same reason we have sexual morality problems. It's about coveting. It's about us wanting and letting our desires run rampant. Uh, a little while ago, I started realizing that I have an unhealthy desire at times for rest and comfort. And the reason I discovered this was because of ways that I saw some anger patterns. So it used to be when our kids were younger that they, by and large, would go to bed at around 8.30, which was like this blessed hour. Because then Jennifer and I could like settle in and watch like an episode of Chuck or Friday Night Lights and just kind of recover and then go to bed. And, and, and I lived sometimes for that moment. But then, of course, things don't always like land the way you want them to. And like, you know, sometimes like 10 minutes in, someone would come thirsty for a drink of water or, or because they can't get to sleep or because they forgot something for school. And, you know, Jennifer, being the kind mom she is, would be like receptive and not. And I would be like, get out of here. I mean, I wouldn't quite say it like that. But I certainly felt that inside. And there was nothing rational about it. It's not like they were doing anything terribly wrong. But for me, I needed that time of rest. And, and what, what was going on, this anger that was coming was because I desired this. And this desire was my master. And anger came as a result. Why do you quarrel? Because you desire and do not have. You covet and you cannot obtain. Once again, our anger issues, they ultimately spring from our belief that our desires are our master and our willingness to let them be our controller. David Paulison, who's really helpful in his book on anger, writes, Nothing lies deeper than the lusts that lead to conflict. Our cravings rule our lives. They directly compete with God himself for lordship. And again, Paul says, that's not you. You know who you are? You are you with Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one that can satisfy your desires when you turn to him. In him, you do not have to let your anger overwhelm you. Put this way behind you. It is not you. How do we put anger behind us? Well, some of the things that I said before still hold true. We need to know and be wanting to change. We need to let other people into it. We need to make a plan. But specifically, I think, when we're making a plan for anger, we need, when we're no longer in that rage mode, to pull back and to ask ourselves a question. In this anger, what do I want? And something more deep than, I want the other person to admit that they're wrong. Because that's oftentimes what we say. But what's going on beyond that? Why are we angry? What are we wanting? And what do you believe will happen if you don't get that? When you start asking those questions, if you are able to be honest with yourself, you will start seeing where your idolatry is. Those places where you're saying, God, I do not trust you to take care of this. And that's where repentance can begin. Even for us to acknowledge, even for us to confess, you know, whether we're talking even about four, sometimes if we say, I don't want to change, that is where we start saying, Lord, I know I should want to change, but I don't. Please help me. And here, confessing, Lord, this is my issue. I think this is what I'm wanting. Would you please change my heart so that I look to you for the things that I'm not trusting you for? And there are promises with this. Going back to James one more time. Here's what James, after diagnosing the heart, says. But God 
gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As we humble ourselves in our anger, as we look to Christ, we, through the power of the Spirit, are able more and more to step into the person that we actually are. Because here's, the hope, here, here's what I hope you leave understanding. It is so easy for us to beat ourselves up and to say, I am such an impatient person. I am such a person without self-control. Why am I like this? And I want you to understand that isn't you. For all of your life, you're going to be living in the after effects of what you once were. But you need to know that is not you anymore. You are you with Jesus. You are not faking it. When you start living into that, you're actually more authentically becoming yourself. As you put these things behind you, and you can through Christ, you are learning what it means to be true to who you truly are. And so this morning, I would like us even to kind of take a moment to kind of step more into that reality. Each of us has ways that we are still addicted to the old way of doing things. And so the first way to move forward is to name them before God, to ask for forgiveness, and take hold of the reality of forgiveness, and to look to Christ to help us. So I invite you even now to spend some time in confession before our God who is forgiving and loving, and allow him to make you more the person he created you to be. Would you please join me in some silent confession? Our loving God, you tell us here that we have died, that our life is hidden with Christ, and that when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory. Father, we pray that you would help us to taste the reality of these words. Lord, we confess that in many different ways we are still idolaters, we still covet. There are ways that we're still holding on to the person we once were. But Father, that is not who we want to be. We want to live out the reality of who we have become through Jesus, of who we will see ourselves on the last day to be. And so we ask for your spirit to give us strength, to give us a deepening love for you and confidence in your love for us. Father, I pray even this morning there are some in our congregation who are feeling overwhelmed, many of us even, by certain temptations that we feel like we don't know how to put behind us. I pray that you would draw us into the freedom that comes through you. 
I pray that you enable people to talk to others, to take hold of the power that they have in Christ Jesus. Would you please move us more and more into this glorious freedom of being your children? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, hear the good news of the gospel. I just quoted in our prayer that we've been considering. It says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.